Today, it's my privilege to deliver the final installment in our Legacy series. What an epic series it has been so far. And today, we're going to wrap it up. We're going to conclude it uh, by looking at another example of the generational blessing and the passing on of the baton from one generation to the next. I'm going to be reading in your hearing from the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua. And Joshua is uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is a transitional book about a transitional leader who is leading transitional people through transitional times. It is a, a handbook or a manual on how transitions work. And transitions are important for people who have generational faith, generational vision, generational goals, because at some point you're gonna to have to pass on uh, that baton to another generation. And so this particular book of Joshua describes the transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua, and it comes loaded with lessons packed with principles. I'm going to read in your hearing from the opening chapter, and we're going to read uh, from the first verse, uh, perhaps through to the fifth verse. It reads, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And all the people said, Amen and Amen. What a powerful uh, reading that describes the transition of leadership between Moses and Joshua, his minister, or as this translation says, his assistant. I'm going to be speaking into our collective destiny from the subject, where do we grow from here? Where do we grow from here? It's an important question and it is my prayer that we will, we will receive answers in this session. Let's pray. Now, Father, in the name above every other name, we come before your awesome presence in Jesus' name. And we are praying for wisdom and understanding. We're praying for revelation. We're praying for light, that the entrance of your word would bring light to our mind and help us to see more clearly than ever before, to help us to see what we could not see before. Give us a breakthrough in our understanding that elevates our faith uh, to another level. God bless your people with a word today. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, we have prayed. And all the saints that love Jesus said, Amen and Amen. Where do we grow from here? Well, in our reading, we see another model of the generational blessing. If you're unfamiliar with the generational blessing, then do go back over this series. All of the episodes are available on my YouTube channel. Just go over it and you'll get a sense of what the generational blessing really is. 
The generational blessing has everything to do with succession. And because biblically, there is no success without succession. And the generational curse, the real generational curse in the Bible, is success without succession. Success without succession is a curse. It is not a blessing because God's plans, God's purposes, and God's promises are simply too big to squeeze into any one person's lifetime. Uh, but you can count on God to be faithful, to keep the covenant, to keep his word, to keep his promises from generation to generation, so that promises that God makes to you may be fulfilled in a future generation, but they will always come to pass. He will be faithful from generation to generation. So God made promises to Abraham, uh, concerning a land, a seed, a blessing, and that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. That promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ 42 generations after uh, Abraham had transitioned. God kept the covenant. He is a faithful God. He will watch over his word to perform it. Whatever God promised you will certainly come to pass and you will see it. If not on this level, then on that level, you will see it come to pass. Abraham saw Jesus by faith. He saw him by faith because he trusted in the word of him that had promised that a seed would, bring, would break the curse off of the nations and bring the blessing to all the families of the earth. He saw Jesus by faith and he experienced a sensation of satisfaction, of joy, and of peace, uh, just knowing that everything God promised him would be fulfilled. So what we have in this uh, reading is another example of the generational blessing, another example of the baton being passed from one generation to another. And what we see here is that Joshua uh, is the next runner in the race who takes the baton from Moses and takes Israel to another level. Moses had done all that he could do. He passed on the baton of, of leadership, the mantle of leadership to Joshua, who then took Israel to another level. It's a very powerful example of what the generational blessing looks like, because with each new generation, the program, the project, the purpose uh, gets taken to another level. That is the mystery, the secret of the double portion. When you legitimately inherit the mantle of a previous generation, the expectation is that you will take it to another level. And that's exactly what Joshua did. He did not continue to lead Israel in circles uh, in the wilderness. You know, Moses led them in circles for 40 years in the wilderness. They literally spent 40 years on on what was effectively an 11-day journey. It took 40 years under Moses, who led them in circles, in circles for 40 years. But when the baton was in the hand of Joshua, God said, Joshua, go over the Jordan, cross the Jordan, go where you've not gone before, and take the children of Israel to the next level and into the next chapter of their amazing destiny. And we read about it right here. It is absolutely profound. 
I also think it's profound to notice that Joshua was Moses' minister or his assistant. So he was in the school of leadership. He was learning leadership. He was studying Moses. He was studying Moses' ways. He was studying the principles and he was serving. And so whatever Moses needed, Joshua made available. Whenever Moses went went into the mountain to talk with God, Joshua went at least part way up the mountain as far as he could go. Uh, just, just striking parallels between Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, because this is another great example and model of how the generational blessing really works. Well, I want you to notice from the story that God made promises to Joshua. And it was important that Joshua hear from God. It was important that Joshua knew that his leadership, um, you know, was credible, that it was authentic, that it was sanctioned by the Supreme Court of Heaven, that God was with him and that God was for him. Because let me tell you, when God calls you to take a project to its next level, you're going to need confidence and you are going to to need some freedom from that spirit of fear. You're going to need courage. You're going to need a set of convictions. And that, that confidence, that courage, those convictions typically come from your personal relationship with God, where you get a revelation from God that God has indeed chosen you uh, to, to take the project to its next level. And, and God never makes mistakes. So if God chose you to take it to another level, then he has anointed you, he has equipped you uh, to take it to another level. So God spoke to Joshua and wanted Joshua to know these words. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I am always going to be present with you. And I think that that is so comforting. It's so reassuring. It's so, uh, it's so reaffirming to know that the God who stood by Moses in every chapter of his story, uh, from he was put into the Nile uh, in, in the basket of reeds, raised in the house of Pharaoh, uh, uh, sent into exile, meeting at the burning bush, returning to Egypt, demanding that Pharaoh let the people go. The God who was with Moses when he led Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea, the God who was with Moses through the wilderness for 40 years, how comforting it must have been for Joshua to hear God tell him, as I was with Moses, so I'm going to be with you. But I want to let you into a secret. Often when I'm studying the Bible, I try to imagine myself uh, in the shoes of the character. And if I were in Joshua's shoes and God had said to me that I'm going to be with you just like I was with Moses, then I would have fully expected, I would have fully expected that same pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. I would have expected manna to fall from heaven every day, just like Moses experienced. I would have expected supernatural evidence, infallible proof 
of God's presence with me because that's what Moses had throughout his entire life was the supernatural, undeniable, infallible evidence of the presence of the living God. Whether it was the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, whether it was water coming out of a rock, whether it was bread that came from heaven or quail that, that came from heaven, the fact that the children of Israel did not need a change of clothes. For the whole 40 years, their clothes grew with their stature. Their shoes grew with their feet. If there was any rebellion in the camp of Moses, uh, Moses didn't even have to fight. He didn't have to fight. He didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to organize a court. God just said, Moses, step aside. And as Moses stepped aside, the ground opened up and swallowed all the rebels. I mean, it was just a, it was just the day of miracle after miracle after miracle. It was a miracle season for uh, Moses. And, and when, when the children of Israel were attacked, Moses didn't even need to fight. He just lifted up his hands on the mountain. And as his hands were lifted uh, on the mountain, the victory was won in the valley. You know, as Joshua, I would have known all of that. I would have seen most of that. And when God said, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, I would have taken comfort to know that all of those miracles, those signs and wonders, those supernatural, infallible proofs of God's presence would be with me just like they were with Moses. After all, after all. Joshua would need that kind of proof. I mean, he would need it. Why? Because no one ever found the body of Moses. You know, God took Moses and God buried Moses' body and no one ever knew where Moses was. So for Joshua to come back and say, Moses is dead. I am the new God-appointed leader. <laughs> well, the least God could do is show up with some signs and wonders, some miracles, some undeniable, infallible proofs that would just validate, vindicate, and authenticate me in front of the people. But what we see happening in Joshua is that the day Joshua takes over, the pillar of cloud, by day, it disappeared. The pillar of fire, by night, it disappeared. The manna stopped falling from heaven. There was no water in the rock, and people's clothes began to feel very tight, and their shoes began to feel very tight. There were no obvious, evident, manifest miracles from the day that Joshua took over. And if I were Joshua, I would have said, but God, you promised that you would be with me in exactly the same way that you were with Moses. This is a mystery, but in unpacking the mystery, we unpack a powerful truth. You see, you must never confuse God's presence with God's performance. Make a note of that. Never confuse God's presence with his performance. God said, Joshua, I will be with you like I was with Moses. God never said, Joshua, I'm going to do for you what I did for Moses. Never confuse God's presence with God's performance. God said, I'm going to be with you. 
didn't say, I'm going to do for you exactly the same things that I did for Moses. See, if you confuse God's presence with his performance, then you will come to rely on performances in order to prove to yourself that God is present. But I want you to know that God is present in your life even when you can't see him doing miraculous things. God is often moving in mysterious ways he's wonders to perform. God is present with you in spite or irrespective of the performance you're able to behold or see. God said, Joshua, I'm going to be with you, but I'm not going to do for you what I did for Moses. Why? Why would God not do for Joshua the things he did for Moses? Well, it's very simple. Moses presided over a baby nation, a baby people, an infantile, immature baby state. You see, no one is born a full-grown man. When you're born... You are a babe, and through the process of maturation and growth, you become a man. The same is true for projects. No project is born fully mature. It starts off as an infant, and it matures, and it grows till, till you can now see the fullness of what that project is. Uh, nations are not born fully formed. They are born, uh, they are infantile, and then they become. You know, many of us can relate to, to uh, colonization and the independence of nations from colonial rule. And very often people are tempted to look at nations who have been recently, uh, who have recently claimed independence from a colonial power and then start comparing that nation with that colonial power in terms of its infrastructure, its processes, its politics, its, its economy, uh, its culture, its society. They start comparing it, but there is no comparison because no one is born a full grown man and no nation is born fully grown or fully formed. Uh, these countries uh, that achieved independence in the 50s and the 60s and in some cases in the 70s, they are baby states. They are baby nations. They are young and they are growing and they are developing and they need encouragement much more than they need tons of criticism because you're comparing them with countries that have had freedom to set their own rules, um, uh, to create their own laws and to to, to, to implement their own ideas for hundreds and in some cases thousands of years. Well, Moses presided over baby Israel. The Israel that came out of Egypt was a baby. The, the baby came through the Red Sea. The, the Red Sea represents the, the breaking of waters and the birth of a baby. What came out of the other side of the Red Sea was baby Israel. Not fully grown Israel, not fully formed Israel, baby Israel. People came out who had been traumatized. Traumatized from years of slavery, years of abuse. Traumatized by the whole experience of, of the Exodus. Uh, these were people that still had a slave mindset. These were people that had not yet received any law. Uh, any statutes, any order, any organization. It was a baby that came out of the Red Sea. And this is why, 
you know, the first thing Moses had to do was bring them to, to the Mount of Covenant, to Mount Sinai, uh, where God would begin to deliver uh, the law that would bring some governance, some structure, some systems, some order. And as the law began to unpack itself, we realized that there were ceremonial laws, uh, there were moral laws and there were civil laws that would begin to give some, some character, some culture, some identity to a people who were effectively babies. And, uh, you know, if you, could, uh, if you could interview a baby while it was, uh, you know, that had recently been born, if you could interview a baby the interview would go something like this. Well, young man, how are you today? I feel fantastic. I feel really good. Well, what's really good? Well, everything's really good. You know, my life is just miraculous. I live in the realm of miracles because everything is supernatural for me. You know, if I'm hungry, food just comes into my mouth. If I'm thirsty, the drink literally appears from nowhere and is literally put into my mouth. You know, um, you know, if, 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 if I am congested, just bang, there's, there's like a hand on my back that just breaks up all of that congestion. If I am uncomfortable, I'm suddenly comforted. And the baby would say, you know what? It's so miraculous for me right now that sometimes I fall asleep in one place and I wake up in another place altogether. It's like a miracle of transportation. And uh, the baby would say, whatever needs I have, they just get supplied miraculously. And then the baby would say, and I found the key, the major key, the master key to releasing all of these miracles in my life. The key is very simple. I just have to cry. <laughs> I just have to cry. I start crying, I get food. I start crying, I get drink. I start crying, I get changed. If I make a mess of myself, it all gets changed and I'm all clean and fresh again. All I have to do is cry. Whatever I don't like, I cry about it and it gets fixed for me. That's the key cry. <laughs> and so that's a very useful illustration because it will, it helps us to understand why it is that, that the Bible describes Israel as constantly crying unto the Lord. Israel cried unto the Lord. And as they cried unto the Lord, bread came from heaven. As they cried unto the Lord, water came out of the rock. As they cried unto the Lord, their enemies were, were sent packing. As they cried unto the Lord, they were comforted. All they had to do was cry. The reason is because Israel was a baby. Israel was a baby. God even said, look, I carried you on eagle's wings. I carried you on eagle's wings. Listen, you are never, ever going to see a full-grown eagle carrying a full-grown eagle. You'll only ever see a full-grown eagle carrying little young eaglets. So when God says, I carried you on eagle's wings, he was saying, you was a baby. You were incapable of looking after yourself, caring for yourself, doing anything for yourself. So I did it all for you when you cried. And this is why God would be present with Joshua, but he would not do for Joshua what he did for Moses. Why? 
because a baby cannot run a country. Oh, help me now. A baby cannot run a country. The Joshua generation couldn't be a baby. God couldn't take babies into the promised land to seize cities, to take territories, to set up governance, to, to create a culture. He could not take babies into that situation. And so the Joshua generation had to grow up. They had to grow up. They couldn't just go into the promised land. They had to grow into the promised land. Because in the promised land, the bread wasn't coming from heaven like it did in the wilderness. In the promised land, the bread is going to come from the wheat that you plant, <laughs> that you harvest, that, that you process, and that you bake. That's where the bread is coming from in the promised land. In the promised land, the water's not coming from the rock. In the promised land, the water is going to come from wells that you need to dig or that you need to unblock. See, in the promised land, you're going to have to learn how to farm. And in the promised land, you're going to have to learn how to fight because those victories that you heard about in Moses' generation, they're not following you into the Joshua generation. The reason why Moses had sweatless, effortless victory in the wilderness is because God was carrying and caring for a baby. But in the promised land, it takes broader shoulders. It takes young men. It takes strength. It takes maturity. It takes character to run a country. And so uh, you're going to have to learn how to fight, which is why you'll see in Joshua. Joshua wins some. He loses some. Yes, he won at Jericho, but he lost in some other places. When it came to rebellion in the camp, Joshua couldn't just step aside. You know, he had to launch an investigation and by process of elimination, extract a confession uh, from a man called Achan, who, who then admitted to his crimes. And then Joshua had to execute the judgment, the punishment on him. Those things wouldn't have happened in Moses' day. But see, Moses presided was like a midwife who was carrying baby Israel. Joshua and the Joshua generation were called to seize cities, to take territories, and to set up a country uh, in the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so what God did for the Joshua generation is the same thing that parents do for children. You know, when, when, when you are born, your mother feeds you, she clothes you, she comforts you, she carries you. But as you grow, she begins withdrawing systematically and intentionally those privileges. Instead of the food being put into your mouth, the food is put on the table and, and a spoon with it. And she'll teach you at first how to use the spoon. Then she's going to leave the food with the spoon for you to use it yourself. You understand what I'm saying. There was a day in your life when your mother would change you. And then the day comes when you've got to change yourself. Come on, somebody. There was a day in your life when, when your mother would do everything for you. But there comes a point, there comes a point in maturation where helping someone is actually hindering their growth. There comes a point at which help is a hindrance. There comes a point at which mothering becomes smothering.
There comes a point at which if you do not allow someone to learn from the school of hard knocks, if you do not allow them to become independent and self-sufficient, you will have stunted their growth. So you're going to find biblically that the first stage of any move of God, the first stage is always clouded with miracles, signs, wonders. Uh, the first stage is always supernatural. Uh, it's, it's filled with infallible proofs of God's presence. But once you get to the second and the third stage, uh, you know, those miracles tend to withdraw. Uh, you don't see those miracles uh, anymore. You're still seeing miracles, but they're a different kind of miracle. It's no longer God doing something for you. The miracle flow changes to where God's not doing it for you. God's doing it through you. Woo! God's doing it through you. <laughs> God's empowering you to farm, and he's empowering you to fight, and he's empowering you to govern, and he's empowering you to rule. He's empowering you, but he's not doing it for you. And this is the transition that we see from Moses to Joshua. Now, why is this important for us in this legacy series? It's important for us to know that in order to inherit a mantle, to inherit responsibility and authority, you have to reach a certain level of maturity so that you can manage that responsibility and that authority. And that until you reach a certain level of maturity, you may have your inheritance by, you know, legally. You may be legally entitled to something that you never experience. And this is the universal predicament of Christianity. Can I preach for just a few more minutes? See, universally, we have a predicament in the church. The predicament is that we have a Bible filled with promises, filled with a menu of resources, uh, of provisions, of promises, many of which we have never tasted, we have never handled, we have only ever imagined, we don't know how to access them, we don't know how to handle them, we don't know how to experience them, even though we know that we're entitled to them. And it's a predicament because we often don't understand why. So I'm going to explain why. Galatians 4, Galatians chapter 4, teaches that the heir, so long as he is a child, is no different to a servant. He is under tutors and governors until a time appointed by the father. Until a time appointed by the father. So, uh... The heir, that is the legitimate successor, so long as he is a child, does not have access to handle, manage, or utilize his inheritance so long as he is a child. He only has access to his inheritance at the time appointed by the father. Now, in order to understand this, you have to realize that in biblical culture, there is a difference between childhood and sonship. Woo! In biblical culture, there's a difference between childhood and sonship. Uh, a child, a male child, is not necessarily 
a son is not called a son until a certain, uh, until an appointed time or until they pass through a rite of passage. And in that rite of passage, they move from childhood to sonship. That rite of passage is often referred to as the bar mitzvah. And uh, the bar mitzvah is very much a part of, of Jewish communities all over the world today. And it is that celebration of that transition from childhood to sonship. Because, uh, because the child, the child in the culture, childhood is, is, the, is the time of your irresponsibility or no responsibility. See, a child has no responsibilities in the culture. Parents are fully responsible for their children, for the child. But in order to transition to sonship, it means that you have now assumed responsibility for your life. You've res assumed responsibility for the management of your father's estate. So you never became a son. You were never officially a son until you were old enough to manage your father's estate, until you had become responsible and been through that rite of passage. And that's why the Bible puts this distinction between children and sons or between children and young men. You, you, you may be familiar with the prophecy in Isaiah. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The child is born, the son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. Whose shoulders? The shoulders of the son, not on the back of a baby. And so unless you grow up, unless you grow up spiritually, intellectually, socially, um, you know, unless you grow up, you cannot access your inheritance. Yes, you have it in a legal sense, but you can't handle it in any practical sense because you're not old enough to handle it, which means now that you can't, you can't just go into your inheritance. You have to grow into your inheritance. Some of you parents know what I'm talking about because you've, you've, you've already written a will. You perhaps have assets held in trust and they are going to be passed on to your children at an appointed time. You can't just give wealth and assets and resources to, an, to a child that is, that is not old enough to handle, to manage that. And so there'll be conditions in your will. There will be uh, perhaps trustees and custodians that are involved until the child reaches a certain age or a certain point. Well, this was very much understood in the culture of the scripture, and it must be understood by us today spiritually, because until we grow to a certain level, uh, until we grow out of childhood and into sonship, uh, we are going to talk about power that we never see or experience. We're going to uh, we're going to have things that we'll never handle. We will we will fantasize about things that are not a fact in our life. We will we will dream about things we've never done. We will talk the talk and never be able to walk the walk until we grow to that next level. Where because see, it's not you that's waiting on your full spiritual inheritance. It is your inheritance that is waiting for you. I'm going to say it again. It's not you that's waiting on God. God's waiting on you to grow up.
There was a reason why it took 40 years of Moses going around in circles in the wilderness. It took 40 years. Why? Because God got Israel out of Egypt in one night, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel. See, God can get you out of a situation just like that, but it may take much longer to get that situation out of you. It's one thing to be delivered from slavery. It's another thing to be delivered from a slave's mentality. It's one thing to be delivered uh, from your tenancy. It's another thing to be delivered from a tenant's mentality. And so it took the psychological and theological and philosophical transformation of Israel in the wilderness, purging them from their old mindsets and old character and old culture to where they could be ready for the leadership of Joshua that would take them into the promised land, where they would be the head and not the tail, above only and not beneath. Can somebody hear me today? I'm going to start to close with this. You know, in the, in the first epistle of John, he addresses three levels of spiritual maturity in the kingdom, in the body of Christ, in the church. Three levels of spiritual maturity. He refers to them as little children, young men, and fathers. Little children, young men, and fathers. Now, this is not a, a gender-specific um, issue, just the culture of the day. Uh, the language of the day, you know, would use gender-specific language, but in, in, in its interpretation, he's not speaking about boys uh, per se. He's speaking about levels of spiritual maturity, little children, young men, and fathers. See, in every church, every person is sitting on one of those levels of spiritual maturity. And I want to tell you something. We all start as little children. That's the only way to start. Uh, you, you know, no matter how accomplished you are in the world, when you come into the kingdom, you must become childlike, childlike. You have to start on the child's level because you've got a lot to learn. You've got a lot to learn about the kingdom of God and about the protocols of the kingdom, about the values of the kingdom and the culture of the kingdom of God. You've got a lot to learn about spiritual order and spiritual authority. You've got a lot to learn about your inheritance, your purpose in life. And so you come in as a student, you come in as a disciple, you come in as a learner, you come in as a child. And in that season of your child likeness. You are not responsible for much. The church is responsible for you. God is looking after you. God is making ways for you, opening doors for you, working miracles for you. Wonderful things are happening for you, just like with Moses. But see, there comes a point at which you transition from spiritual childhood to spiritual sonship. And I'm going to tell you how it works. I'm going to tell you how you know where you are. You see, so long as you are a spiritual child, you're a spiritual infant, then you will have uh, a particular obsession. You will have a dominant obsession. And your dominant obsession is always going to be with comfort. 
Okay? Uh, you want to be comfortable. That's the most important thing for you. That, that church is comfortable. That Christianity is comfortable. That your life and lifestyle is comfortable. And you are, you are always going to be asking a, a dominant question. The dominant question is, you know, what's in this for me? You know, what is what can God do for me? What can the church do for me? What are my friends doing for me? What are my family doing for me? What is my workplace doing for me? What, are, what is society doing for me? What is the government doing for me? Because you're a child. You're thinking about, you, you have inherited a sense of entitlement that as a child makes sense. Uh, as a young man doesn't make sense. But you feel entitled to be called if you're absent, to be supported if you're going through. You know, it's, it's everyone else's job to look after you and to feed you. And so you have an obsession with comfort. You have the question in that you're constantly looking for, for things from others. But when you make the shift, the transition from childhood to sonship, there's a new obsession. There's a new obsession in your mind. And, and the obsession of sons is contribution and participation. So a son wants to contribute and wants to participate, wants to be involved, wants to work, wants something to do. So when you first start off in church life, you're not looking for something to do. You want everything done for you. But there comes a point in your spiritual maturation where simply coming to church and, and getting everything served to you doesn't work for you anymore. You're cultivating a new appetite. You want to contribute. You want to participate. So now you're asking, are there any vacancies? Is there a vacancy with the stewards? Is there a vacancy in the, in, in, in the, in the audio uh, visual department? Is there a vacancy in the band? I can play a little bit. Can I join the choir? Is there a vacancy in the children's church? Is there a vacancy with the, with the youth? Uh, is there anything the church needs? Can I help? I want to help. What's happening, you're growing out of childhood and you're coming into sonship. And let me tell you something, churches cannot be built on the backs of babies. Churches can only be built on the shoulders of sons. God is calling every childlike and childish member of, of our movement to grow up to the next level to where you become an active participator. You, you leave the bandstands as a spectator and you move into the arena of participation and contribution where your hand finds something to do and you're now doing it with all of your might. You're now part of the church because you're part of what makes the church the church. You're part of the teamwork that makes the dream work. But then, my friends, there are fathers, and the fathers have another obsession. Uh, and, and just backtracking to the sons, the sons have the obsession to contribute, to participate, and their dominant question is, what can God do through me? Not what can God do for me, but what can he do through me? So you're not now coming to get something from God, you're coming to give something from God. Uh, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a subtle transition. 
and, and sometimes you can't tell exactly when it happened, but it happened that I'm not coming to get something from God. I'm coming to give something from God. I want God to work through me. I want God to use me to help others, to, to, to save others, to heal others, to become a lifeline to someone else. God use me. That's the prayer of a son. But the fathers have another obsession. The magnificent obsession of fathers is succession. It's legacy. It's sustainability. It's, it's growth. This is the obsession of fathers. And you will know when you have transitioned from a, from a young man, from a son to a father, because now you're thinking, look, what we've built is amazing but what we've built has got to be built to last. This ministry, this department, this operation, this function, this business, Woo, hallelujah, because this doesn't just apply in church. I'm using church as a model. It applies in, in all the socioeconomic spheres of influence. It, 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 it equally applies to business. It applies to, to, to the voluntary sector organizations. It, it, it applies to anything that you're building. It applies to your project. It applies to your purpose. There comes a point at which sustainability uh, succession, continuity become the big issues in your mind. And it's not because you have some sort of morbid death wish. It's because you realize that so long as everything relies on you, there is a weakness in the plan. There's a weakness in the project. And so you, you start to bring people around you and show them how to do things. You're now mentoring the next generation. You're investing in the development of future leaders and you're bringing people with you so they can shadow you, so they can learn from you by observation. And sometimes you'll sit down and talk to them about how to do things. You'll give them an opportunity to do it while you're watching and, and, and holding their hand as they go. And then there'll come a point at which you say, you know what? You are better than me at doing this. I want you to run with it. I'm always going to be with you. I'll be with you like I was in the beginning, but I'm not going to do for you what I did in the beginning because you're old enough now to go for it and run for it. And so I want you to notice in the reading of, of, of 1 John, that when John lists these levels of maturity, he doesn't list them in chronological order. He does not say, little children, I write to you, young men, I write to you, fathers, I write to you, because that's the chronological order. You're a child, you're a young man, you're a father. He doesn't do it that way. He does it this way. He says, little children, I write to you, fathers, I write to you, young men, I write to you. Wow. So why did he put the fathers in between the children and the young men? Well, it's very simple. Because children never become young men without spiritual fathers. You see, what the children need is spiritual fathers. And that's what Paul said. He said, you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, but you do not have many fathers. We do not have many fathers, many who are obsessed with succession, many who are 
fully invested in developing future leaders. We don't have many who are lending their time, talent, and treasure to the development of what is next. And because we don't have many fathers, we have so many children, so many children who are irresponsible, often childish, crying about everything and expecting the world to stop because they're crying. We've got a lot of babies hanging around the church world, hanging around society, just crying about stuff. And we don't have many young men because we don't have many fathers who are invested and investing in the development of future leaders. I'm here to tell you, child of God, it is time for you to grow to the next level. If you've been operating as a child in this ministry, it's time for you to take up responsibility, find something to do, become a contributor and a participator, uh, shoulder some of the weight of managing a ministry, and become a son of the house. Become a son of the house in terms of your level of spiritual maturity. And if you are already operating as a son in the house, God is calling you to the next level to become a spiritual father to where you are now investing in the development of future leaders. You are now becoming obsessed with succession. You are now saying, God, uh, I just want your glory. Whether it happens for me or through me doesn't matter. It matters that it happens. It matters that this thing has continuity, sustainability, legacy, and life. It's shifting to the big picture that you started a ministry. You know, if you started a ministry and you feel comfortable to leave it in no one's or anyone's hands, there is a lack of maturity in your life. You need to grow up. You're still a bit of a young man. You need to become a spiritual father that says, look, I started this and, and you know, God's calling me to do some other things, but before I do those other things, I'm gonna invest in the development of future leaders so that what we started can continue. This is a very important principle in our legacy series, and I trust it's been a blessing to you. Let's pray right now. Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray for every person under the hearing of this apostolic and prophetic word. For Lord, the question, where do we grow from here? Oh God, it's such an important question because the next level is waiting on us. We are not waiting for the next level. We're not waiting for the next chapter. We are not waiting. It is waiting on us to grow to the next level, from childhood to sonship, from sonship to fatherhood. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will seed this word in our soul until our obsessions change, until our questions change, until our dreams change, until our, our priorities change and our values change, so that we can genuinely, genuinely experience the power of a generational blessing and of a double portion with each new generation. Be glorified and magnified in this word is our prayer in Jesus' mighty name. And all the saints that love Jesus said amen and amen. 
You've been listening to a live sermon at ICANN Community Church. We hope that you feel inspired, informed, and empowered to take your life to the next level. We want to build a relationship with you, whether you attend ICC or not. Of course, we would love for you to visit or even to join. But if that's not possible, we can still stay in touch. Go to our website at www.icancommunitychurch.com and subscribe to our mailing list for updates on special events which may be coming to an area near you. Until next time, this is Bishop Wayne Malcolm saying God bless you.